No, I, I've said the stereotype is not true for years about you. Do you have to press the button? Okay. I'll, I'll cut the first part out. Okay. All right, guys, I'm pretty excited about this year topic because it's not usually part of my issues with Jewish thought curriculum. And I think it's an important topic. A lot of people, a lot of students, when they come to Raita, they start to think about Hashkaf issues more seriously. And they're also confronted by various opinions. I think uh, one can safely say that uh, not everyone Raita thinks the same thing about how to navigate the religious universe. So we're going to take a look a little bit about how to deal with that question and a specific issue having to do with different conceptions of God, which I think definitely comes up very much in the Raita discourse. Okay, so let's start with a Rambam on the Mishnah. Now, some of you may know that the 10th parak of Sanhedrin is a parak called Parak HaChelek. Who knows what's unique about Parak HaChelek? It is all Agadah. There is no Halacha. And one of the things that's discussed there is who gets to Olam Haba. That's one of the conversations. And there's discussion about particular generations. Does Dor HaMabal get in? Does Dor Migdal Babel get in? Okay, so look what the Rambam says. Kvar... Okay, Kvar his Kamapamim, I've already mentioned, Let's say there's a debate, or many debates in our tradition. There's no halachic ramifications. Now, this is a pretty striking and important Rambam. What does the Rambam argue? In these kinds of debates, there's no need for Psak. Meaning, Judaism will go on if half of us think that Dor HaMabal will make Dolom Haba, and the other half thinks that Dor HaMabal will not make Dolom Haba. Now, I don't want to push this too far, because obviously it would be false to say that according to the Rambam, any Hashkafic question is a free-for-all. Obviously that's not true. After all, the Rambam is the one who wrote the Gimli Karim. So clearly Rambam thinks that certain things are not up for debate. Like, the Rambam would not say, it's okay if half of Am Yisrael thinks that God has a body, and the other half thinks he doesn't. You say, no, no, there, there is only one right answer. But apparently there is a world of hashkafa beyond Yud Gimli Karim, beyond fundamental beliefs. And there, Rambam seems to indicate that there's more flexibility in that world than there is in the world of halacha. Now, I think one could argue in, in two ways why this might be true. Why would you say there could be more flexibility in that world? But what's one of the points that Rambam just made? But what, what forces, so to speak, a lack of flexibility in halacha? Yeah? Yeah, you need to do something. So you can't say, ultimately, it's all a free-for-all. At some point, someone's going to say, no, we do this, and we don't do that. Right? So in some ways, in halakhic topics, you're kind of forced towards a conclusion. Granted, we still have debate in halakha, but we are forced to a conclusion. Arguably, in ashkafic topics, we're not forced to a conclusion. Right? So that could lead to greater flexibility. You don't actually have to choose to do A or B. Secondly, I think, maybe, the Rambam doesn't say this, but maybe there's a sense that hashkafic questions depend more on the personality of the questioner, that it very much functions on who you are and what you identify with, which I think in halacha will come up much less. Just to give an example, guys, let's say there are two ways to make a no tea on Shabbos. You can either use a klishlishi or boil tea essence. I don't think most of the room will say, Rabbi, but my whole hashkafa goes together with, you know, being a tea essence guy or being a klishlishi guy, right? That seems to be like a technical question separate from, right, who you are as a person where hashkafic questions touch much more at the root of who you are. 
So again, I don't want to be overdo it. Rambam does have a sense of Yudgimli Karim that are not negotiable. But he does also seem to have this category where in Hashkafi you don't need a psak. Okay, everyone good so far? Okay, great. So guys, we're just going to take a, a tendency. Here's what I did this time, guys. Just it has a, what your last name starts with, different categories, like AD, put your name in there. Okay, so just send it around the whole uh, boom. Just write your name. You can even write just your last name. We'll save time. Okay, thanks. All right, let's go on to the next thing, guys. So let's go to Rev Cook. Now, this is, we're going to see two Rev Cook quotes. Guys, I, I didn't put that many sources on the page because the Rev Cook quotes will take a little while, especially the second Rev Cook quote. Okay, let's go to Rav Kook. Now, this is quite interesting because there was a historian named Yavitz who was very critical of Rambam. And he said that Rambam was too influenced by the Greeks. Right? Rambam gave in too much to Aristotle. And Rav Kook wrote a defense of the Rambam. So let's look at his defense here in the second source. Okay, there's a collection of articles about Rav, by Rav Kook called Mamare Haraya. Where's David Lorand? David Lorand, are you here? Okay, tell David Lorand that a Mamar is an article. Okay, here we go. So the Rambam says... The making a decision in these matters, it depends on the person. Notice this is much more like I had said, not just the fact that there's no need for practical reason. What factors are Cook emphasizing? A lot of these questions depend on who you are, your personality. Okay, excellent. There's no doubt. There's certain people. What are deot miyuchadot? Certain opinions. They have a good effect on you. What do those positions do for you? They connect you to the world of spirituality and Torah and mitzvot, etc. And there are other people. What happens to these other people? It is other opinions that will connect them to Kedusha. So it's almost like if you asked Rev Cook, should I be a Rambam man or a Kuzari man? What would he say? I can't answer. That's up to you. Right? Does Rambam bring you closer to the Torah or does Kuzari bring you closer to the Torah? So I, I mentioned the other day, I remember before I was in Mornavukham and Nishan thought. The idea that there might be another way to evaluate beliefs. Like, one way to evaluate beliefs is, obviously, are they true or not? That's primary. But beyond whether they're true or not, I'm asking you, like, what leads to a better world? What leads to people being more ethical, people being more spiritual? And maybe that could also be another evaluation. Now, I said the real truth seekers might not love this. But I will give you, perhaps, two arguments why you might be able to, two categories might, might come to this conclusion. Let's say there's somebody in this room who says, I'm convinced there's a God, for whatever reason. The argument from design convinces me, the amazing survival of the Jewish people convinces me, whatever the case may be. But I'm not sure how God created the world. So then you might say, oh, you know what? Which position you take could be based on which you think will lead to uh, making the world a better place. What will inspire you more? What will uh, you know, make you more w- want to be spiritual, more like one be ethical, everybody at this point? I mean, you start with something you say is truth, but then there's a detail that you're not sure about. You feel like there's no way to establish, is this the right sense or is that the right sense of creation? We'll get to that in a second. So maybe you'd use these other kinds of criteria for working out the answer. Okay, that's my one example. I have another category. What if someone just says, I really trust the Jewish tradition? And therefore, if there are two rabbinic voices of great stature who say a position, that means it must be a, pro- a, a, a possibility, a live possibility. If the Rambam and Huda Levi both took positions, there are a lot of possibilities. Now maybe I'll decide based on which one inspires me more. Have we been so far, guys? 
So I think even those of us in the room who are the great truth seekers, right, the only thing that matters is truth, might understand why Rav Cook's model is a good model. Right? Again, you might say, I'm convinced there's a God, but not sure whether this is or that is the correct conception of God. Or you might say, there's two positions in our tradition, both with legitimate pedigree, and therefore I have a right to choose which is right. So look what he says here. This is pretty remarkable. Says Rav Cook at the end, and he's upset, because why is he upset? Because remember, because Yaivet said, I reject Rambam as being too Greek, that Rambam is not legitimate. So look what he says here in the last paragraph. What does he know? There might be some people who cannot connect their spirit to. Maybe people find it, it's too elitist, it's too intellectual, it's too Aristotelian, whatever the case may be. There it is. What does Rav Cook recommend, if that's you? Yeah, find somebody else. Thank God there are other voices out there. Maybe you like Rabbeinu Bechaya, maybe you like Rav Sadigon, maybe you like the Kuzari, maybe you like, uh, you know, the Zohar, find some other approach. Okay. But, Aval, what is he adamant about though? Chalila lanu, God forbid, lahuti laz, al, oh, this must be a mistake. Okay, I just got this from the internet. It's got to be some like chitzoniut. The kalvachomer shel yivaniut v'zarut al But what should you not do? What's lahuti laz? You know what that means? Don't tell bad tales about Rambam. And notice what he says. What does he say? Yevaniut. What's the Rambam? He is just Greek. Vizarut. He is just strange. For Rav Cook, once Rambam took the position, it is a legitimate option for a Jew. You don't like it? That's fine. Find somebody else. Okay? So here we have, I think this fits what we saw before. What do we have so far, guys? The Rambam said... Hashkafa might not need a psak in the way that halacha does. And now we have Rav Cook saying, and maybe even a criteria will be, what inspires you more? Now, obviously, one criteria, what do you think is more true? Of course. But Rav Cook is also willing to have a criteria be, does A connect you more to Torah and Mitzvot, or does B? And whether you're Rambam man or not, that, that's just a personal question. Okay, Charlie? Well, I think you have two options, both live options. One of them definitely uh, inspires you more, but you're saying about telling you... Oh, that's a great question. Okay, that's a very good question. I don't think I could answer it, but you guys are very sharp. Charlie said, what if I think A is more likely true, but B is more likely inspiring? That is a very good question. I'm not sure I could answer it, Charlie, because it might depend on what degree each is true, right? How much more am I convinced that A is true than B, and how much more is B? You see what I'm saying? Like, I'll, I'll give you an example, guys. Actually, I'll, I'll, can I give you one example? Okay, you know, as you guys know, okay, we don't talk about this so much, but we'll talk about it now. Okay, Rabbini and Rabbi certainly think about the way God interacts with the world differently than I do. So I think it's fair to say that in their world, God is involved in every nook and cranny of existence. Okay, is that a fair, fair statement? I don't want to misrepresent my colleagues. Is that fair? Okay, so I admit I don't think about the world that way. Right, I think about the world that, you know, God set up a natural order, and he only steps in in rare circumstances, but for the most part, he depends on human freedom and human responsibility and lets the world run. Okay, we're good so far, guys? Okay, now let's say someone said to me, now we once in our history right to had a panel about this, and Rav David asked me an interesting question. Rav David said, but what if, according to Rabbi Aaron and Rabbini's position, tefillah would be work, may make more sense? And according to your position, you're going to struggle with tefillah. Okay, so that was a good question that Rav David asked me. So I said to him, that might be true, but that doesn't mean I could just magically take the other position. Like, what if my position just seems much more real to the world as I experience it? Right, so at that point, it's harder, it's not something you can necessarily flip a switch and say, I'll just start thinking the other way. Right, so Charlie, I think that's an example of your point, right? 
if I thought, well, my position seems a bit more true than the other position, it might be, then I could say, I'll just go with the other position. But if I experience my position as being far more true than the other position, then it's not so easy. But you can't always adopt something if you think it's really just not correct, right? So I would say it depends on degree. Yeah, Yoni? To what extent do you have to be consistent? Okay, that's, uh, that's a really interesting question. Just, I'm curious, do you mean that different beliefs will not mesh so well, or I'll think one way on Monday and a different way on Tuesday? Because uh, no, they're both very interesting questions, actually. Which one did you mean? The former. Okay, that, you know what? Either they're both really interesting I'm questions. Both. I'm, I'm going to duck them both for now. We'll see if we have time again. No, they're both really good questions. Amy? Look, so I, I did say, maybe I, I did say that there's a, in response to Charlie's question, there's a balance of the two factors, right? That it's hard to do that if I'm convinced it's totally false, then... Uh, what? Okay, but I, I it's hard to answer because it might depend on the percentages in both categories. I, I can't give you a answer because it depends, like, how more convinced I am that this is true and how much more inspiring will A be than B, right? So I'm not trying to give you, like, the formula for that. Okay. Although, if you get people in the habit of only caring about truth and not inspiration, it could be that as implications also. Is that not a better consequence? Depends where how the world will look after that. I would think that it would look better. All right. That's an assumption. You have to work out if that's really true. Okay. Yeah, David. Say it again. Okay, that's fair. But I think for Rev Cook, you shouldn't reject it as a lie, as a possibility. It could be you could be convinced it's wrong. That's okay, right? But the question maybe for somebody else, it becomes legitimate at that point. Look, you have to realize one thing that you have to read the whole essay because Rev. Cook does not think the Rambam just gave in to Aristotle. Okay? Rev. Cook thinks that the Rambam Judaified Aristotle. Okay? So yeah, you have to read the whole essay to see where, where he's coming from there. All right, guys, I'll take more comments in one second. I just, I'm nervous I'm not going to get the other piece here. Okay, let's get to the long piece and I'll take a lot of comments at the end. Okay, now one thing about Rev. Cook, guys, many of you know that his early writings, he wrote them all, but he didn't collect them. Okay, other people put his stuff together. So, for example, O wrote. His major statement about Jewish nationalism was put together by his son, Rav Tzvi Yehud. And Orod HaKodesh, which is arguably his major philosophy work, was put together by his student, the Nazir. Okay? But it came from eight notebooks, okay? or many notebooks. But there are eight famous notebooks that he wrote called Shmonak Vatsim. And only in the last 20 years did these notebooks come out, where you get to see where the original was taken from. Okay, so we are going to look at Shmonak Vatsim. I'm not going to tell you what it is. But interestingly enough, the version of this passage that appears in Orda Kodesh is slightly uh, edited. Okay, so if you want to uh, see what the Nazir changed, you can look it up. Okay, we'll see who's eager enough to look it up and see what the Nazir changed. Okay, let's see what happens when it puts him. And now we're going to get to what you're all thinking about. Okay, says Rav Cook, he is going to make a contrast to what he calls classic monotheism and panentheism. Okay, what is classic monotheism? Okay, ah, I thought you guys would be excited. Okay, God made the world. 
and the world is separate from God, right? One imagery for this would be God is like a potter sitting at the potter's wheel. So he forms the world. Certainly the pot, the, the pot that is made certainly is God's will, certainly expresses God's wisdom, but no one would say that the pot is the potter. Okay, so that would be one way of thinking about the world. Let us call that classic monotheism. Okay, then that would be contrasted with an approach that's much more popular in Kabbalistic modes of thought, which we're going to call panentheism, which one way to think about it is like the sun sends out rays. Right, the rays are much more connected to the sun than the pot is to the potter. And then the world that is created is somehow, I don't know, I'll use different terms, connected to God, within God, whatever the case may be, not independent of God. Okay, we're good so far? Okay, so now, Rav Cook, now in the, there's no denying that in the Jewish tradition you could find both approaches, okay? They're both there. So let's say we go with the model I set up before, that once they're both in the Jewish tradition, they're both legitimate. So now for Rav Cook, and don't forget, Rav Cook wants to evaluate things. Let's say Rav Cook thinks we can't prove the truth. Let's say we're convinced there's a God, but he could have created the world the Potter method, he could have created the world in the sun's rays method. So now, what would Rav Cook have to ask? What impact will each approach have on our lives, right? If we think about it this way, or if we think about it the other way. But now things get really interesting, because I think to some degree there can't be a right answer, because I would go back to what the Rambam said in the beginning and what Rav Cook said, that depends on who you are and how you relate to the two ideas. But let's see how Rav Cook thinks it plays out psychologically. I think you guys will find this fascinating. Because here we go. It is natural. What's the hashkafa regila? The regular outlook. Right? Classic monotheism. Now look what Rav Cook says. What's he getting at now? That is more... Well, no, I mean, if you didn't go to Orita, probably classic monotheism is more what you hear than panentheism, right? So it's Yotam before Semet. Okay? Keep going. What do you say? What happens in your neo London world? Okay. Okay, here we go. Okay. What did you say, Charlie? Okay, because I made up a new term for Akiva Garner. He's not a neo Hasid, he's a neo London. Okay, here we go. So this is more well known. He misavevet lefamin. This is very interesting, guys. So fascinating psychologically. Eitzev v'chalishut nefesh. What does Rav Cook think it's going to make you think if it goes to classic monotheism? You're going to be sad. You're going to be down. Now, why are you going to be down if you're a classic monotheist? Mifnei harifyon haba. Rifyon is weakness. Beruach adam. There'll be a weakness in the human spirit. Bitziro. Shehu b'tar nimtza misovev mugbal v'chalash. How do you perceive yourself? Let's do those last two words. Great to know. David Loran, I believe you're here. David Loran. Yeah. What does the word mug... This is not for you only. What does the word mugbal mean? Limited. Who can tell me why the word mugbal means limited? Gvul. Very good. Great word to know. You are limited and chalash and weak. Not only that, rachoku mehashlama lokit. And you are very distant from divine perfection. So Rav Cook thinks classic monotheism will get you down. It's true, you can believe in this great God out there, but unfortunately... You're totally removed from him. You're totally distant. He's transcendent, and you're just here, you know, doing your thing in the, you know, in the lunchroom, in the bathroom, and the like. What, what do you have to do with, uh, with God? Okay. especially This weakness is awakened. What else do you start to think about? What are chesronot musariim? 
You're ethical lacking, right? Imagine you're saying about Veko, I get angry too much, I get frustrated too easily, I'm impatient, I'm not sensitive enough to my mother. What if you start listing all that? Then again, you feel, man, am I distant from authentic goodness? I am really far from God, right? So again, he says, per se, you feel you are weak and distant. And then when you think about your ethical shortcomings, right, the sense of distance is expanded. Okay, says Rav Cook, uh, we'll skip a little bit. Amnam alula Maybe this weakness could be a little bit limited. And what the word etan means? Strong. What if you find you're a pretty good guy? Okay, what if, I don't know, Mendy Numerk looks at himself and he really is a very nice guy. So he says, okay, I'm not such an ethical failure. So maybe that limits it to some degree. But, What does Cook claim? Even when that happens, the weakness is never totally removed. Okay, so Rav Cook says... Classic monotheism leads to depression because of a sense of distance from God. Everybody good so far? We're great? Okay, let's go to the next paragraph. Okay, here we go. I'm just taking a sip of the coffee. Uh, you, you know? Okay, very good. I skipped a word, but Yoni Zerman is saving the day here. Does anyone know what the word bitor means? Bitor is the rabbinic phrase for qua. That is a crucial word. Guys, if you don't know that word, you can't leave at the end of the year. You have to stay shown a bit. Okay, bitor is qua. Okay, it's good, David, but you have to remember it till the end of the year. Okay. <laughs> what? That's the whole final. It's one question. What does Bitor mean? Okay, and then use qua correctly in a sense. And Charlie, you don't have to say qua, qua something, okay? You don't have to say, you know, Charlie, qua, Charlie. You could say something else. Okay, here we go. Okay, guys, Charlie still amazed me. It's just amazing that someone with stomach problems was told by the doctor, if you go to Chatzir four times a day, it's okay. It just, there's, 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 Charlie, there's just no way. There's no way that happened, Charlie. There's no way. I want to talk to your doctor. Okay. Okay. You must have some family doctor you paid off, Charlie. It just doesn't make any sense. Okay. Evan, do you think that could that be possible? Could that be possible? That's what the doctor told him? Okay. All right, here we go, guys. Let's go on to... Uh, on to the next paragraph. Okay, on to Tzadivah. Okay, here we go. Says Rav Kook. But now, we, what about when we switch hashkafot? Now things get very interesting. Pachot hazot, miyagat adam, what will be less wearisome, right? Miyagat is weary to a human being. Look what he says, guys, let's be very careful. Hashkafah monotheistic. It starts monotheistic, but hanoteh, but it inclines lahasbarah spinozin. It has a certain inclination towards... Spinoza, because Spinoza was a pantheist. So Rav Cook says there's a monotheism with an inclination towards pantheism. Now, obviously, that's going to involve a different sense of creation, where God is much more intimately connected to what he created. There isn't a sense of gap or distance. Okay, says Rav Cook. Uh, and it needs to be purified from its dross. So apparently, you could have a, a wrong conception of this. But if you purify it, it'll be less wearisome. It'll be better for a human being. Now look what he says here. This is very interesting. Where do you find this good approach? In the intellectual uh, aspect of new Hasidus. Now, I don't know how people know this, but every scholar I read claims that that's a reference to Chabad. I don't know why they know that, but uh, that's their claim. That that's the, I'm sorry, that that's the intellectual version of New Hasidun. They still have Chabad, but okay, let's leave that be. She'ein shum davar mi What do you think of in this position? Exactly, there's nothing but, nothing but divinity. Okay, 
And now, clearly, where's Rukuk going to go, guys? He's going to say that this is a more optimistic version. Again, what made me, what made me depressed in the first version? The sense of distance from God. What will I think of in this version? I'm not distance from God in some ways. I'm part of Him. Okay? We're everyone good with that so far? Okay, so we clearly see where Rav Cook is going with this. I just want to mention one point before we move on. Now, don't forget, guys, the evaluation here is essentially psychological and experiential. So in my mind, once that's true, I think it would be legitimate for anybody in this room to say, but I actually don't react that way to the two approaches. In my mind, for whatever reason, classical monotheism is a more encouraging approach to my religious life. I mean, at this point, because again, Rav Cook didn't say here that based on my tradition from Sinai, we have to go with the panentheistic approach. He said it will lead to a more joyous and productive existence. That's what Rav Cook says. Which again, Rav Cook is a great man. He's certainly entitled to his experiential reaction. But I don't see why everybody would have to have the same reaction. Okay, I think for me, I'll discuss why in a few minutes, why maybe the monotheistic approach would be more encouraging towards my religious life. Okay, maybe I'll actually pause for a second. Michael. Okay, we'll, we'll get there in a second. Okay, I don't think that's exactly what Rav Cook says, but we'll get there in a minute. Yeah. Look, I think it depends. You might argue that's, that it's impossible for you to have a perfect conception of God. So, so that... Well, so let me say one thing. First of all, I think I overdid a little bit when I did the contrast between halacha and hashkafa. Like, it's hard to say that we all practice exactly the same halacha, right? Some of us eat kidney yod on Pesach, some of us do not, right? I don't know what else we throw in there. Some of us, I know, say bar shamar before hodu, some of us say after hodu. I guess that's not such a big one, right? Uh, what else we throw in there? What's a big halakha debate? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Some of us make mizonot on schnitzel, some of us make shakol. Okay, that can be, there are halakhic differences, but I think there's a greater sense in the world of halakha that we need a common core. Because if we didn't have a common core, in some ways, Jewish communal religious life, I'll give you one example, Simcha. I think one thing we've been intolerant about through history, in a good way, We've been intolerant about machlokot about the calendar. Why have we been intolerant about machlokot about the calendar? Because we basically say like you can't have religion if different people have different holidays. We insist everybody should celebrate Pesach on the same day. And I think there was a wisdom there to doing that. In case you're curious, by the way, guys, it's not true today in Christianity. Okay, when they switched uh, the Julian calendar for the Gregorian calendar, the Greek Orthodox refused to move. So if you guys look it up, you'll discover that there's a 13-day discrepancy in when they celebrate Christmas. Okay, but, so I would say, Simcha, it's not that everybody has to say the same halakha all the time. We have Machloket. But I think we felt we needed a core for there to be a Jewish communal identity that would go on. Yes, Jack. We're dealing with, sometimes we're dealing with questions that, by nature, only one of these answers can be right. Like, Hashem can't be both. He can't be both non and connected. Well, what if we're in the following situation, Jack? What if we have no way of proving which one is right? What should we do? 
doesn't this seem like a good thing to do if you can't prove who's right? Yeah. So I, I said I can easily envision someone who's convinced there's a God, but has no way of proving did God create the world in the Potter fashion or in the panentheistic fashion. And at that point, it seems to me this would be a good way to uh, make a decision, right, when you're in that position. Okay, yeah, David. Um, if there's no way to prove it, then what's the point of trying to figure it out? Whoa, they're, they're, most of the important things in the world, there's no way to prove it. We try to spend time trying to figure out, like, right, who, I mean, like who you should marry, whether you believe in ethics, who your friend is. Of course, of okay. course. But that's, I mean, the concept within the frame of Judaism, the point of, the point of, uh, the point of Judaism is, like, at least for, like, such fundamental beliefs, we generally have things, certain things thought out, right? Like, like the fact that Judaism, fundamental Judaism, I guess, a religious Judaism is that God exists. Right? Okay. So... You know, and we, we kind of take that as a given. Okay. But certainly here, where we can't... Really okay, but uh, let's try the following, guys. It's good. You guys have a lot of good questions. Let's say someone says, maybe I should just take no stand on this. Okay? But can anyone suggest why that might be a weakness? No. David says we don't know one way or the other, so we won't take a stand. Okay, yeah, Ellie? Okay, first of all, that's also a stand. I would say something further. I would say, you know, people are sometimes in, like, let's say someone to me, I don't have a hashkafa. Okay, I actually once knew a guy like this. He was a really yeshivish guy. Where's no one when we lost him? Okay, he just loved Lomdus. So he went, basically, I don't have a hashkafa, I just love Lomdus. So I don't think it's really true. Like, you invariably have a hashkafa. Okay, because let's say you daven. You either think it works one way or you think it works a different way. Right, let's say you do mitzvot. You either think they accomplish anything. They, what does it mean to not think about at all what they accomplish? I'm not sure it's humanly possible. So I would say to you, David, you might say I shouldn't take a stand, but I'm either going to start to think about my relationship with God this way or that way. I'm not sure I can really not think about my relationship with God, right? So I think sometimes you're forced to make a choice, right? You, you, it's just the way you can be who thinks about the world is going to make it, going to conceive it one way or the other way. So ultimately, what we're just saying is whatever makes you feel better. Okay, no. I, first of all, I said in the beginning that if you were totally convinced that A is true and B is false, you might have to go with A. You might not be, you might not be capable of just saying, I'll do B anyway. Right, but what about if there's a case where you're not so convinced which one is true? Right. So then again, and also I, would, I don't like the phrase just makes you feel better. I think his question is what makes the world a better place? It's, it's not selfish. I mean, I, mean, I, mean, okay, I mean, I don't feel like inherently having one position will actually, uh, as opposed to other nations, like other positions will change, actually change the world, but just change the, your perception of the world. Okay, but you. if you are a more productive person, the world becomes a better place. So that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is whatever, I'm saying whatever, like, obviously the oversimplification, I said, okay. Aaron. Um, what are the limits to, like, how broadly you can view, like, you know, the idea of God? Like, like, you know, like, Look, I did point out by starting saying that I don't think it's a total free-for-all. Like, the Rambam starts with Gimli Karim. So there is, I don't debate what it is today, but I think if it's a total free-for-all, Judaism wouldn't be any, have any meaning. So I think there is some core, but when, beyond that core, there could be a lot of freedom, a lot of flexibility. Yeah, no. Um, I have uh, two things. One is a response to AZ and one is a response to Jack. Um, I, would say, I would say in terms of Jack thing where you can't have both of them be true, I think that's the point that Robert is making where he's like it's above either or a lot. It depends on whose perception you're looking at. And it's like, it depends on if you're looking from Hashem's perspective or from ours. And also for Amy, you said that it's more, it's better to view things just based off of objective reality, but you don't live that way. Right? Mm -hmm. The objective reality is that, I think, 
As an economy, when the truthful world are a lot less severe than the latter. You don't make decisions based on the investment reality. You guys walk down the street. All right, here, guys. This is a great debate, but I'm you guys have it during dinner. Okay? Okay. Well, one second. We're going to move on a little bit, guys. Skip down to two lines from the bottom. Okay, David Edwards, how many times have you spoken today? Yeah, you sure? Okay. Uh, let's see, two, two lines to the bottom. Okay, now, how will you feel according to the panentheist approach? So in some ways, you're more of a nothing now. Look what he says now. You're nothing. Guys, why are you more of a nothing in the second approach than the first? Because in the first approach, at least, you have independent existence. You might be lowly and small and distant from God, but at the same time, you're still you. Right, so in the second approach, you're more of a nothing than in the first approach. Let's keep reading. Um, I'm turning the page. Fine, let's go to end of the second line. But in the first approach, but it's still not. Total FS, total... Nothing else. Rav Cook is still saying you're more of a yesh in the first approach. But not in the second approach. Okay, which says there's nothing but nothing but God. Okay, now comes the most interesting part. Says Rav Cook. Uh, skip down to line begins in the Really, the whole thing is worth doing, but we can't do it in one year. What would be Ra'oi? What would you? Fit. What do you think would happen? You think that the second approach would weaken man? Okay, but that's just a havmina. Why would you think the second approach would weaken man? Because now you're saying that you're really you don't exist. You're nothing. Says Rav Cook. Okay. Nevertheless, it's not true. Rav Cook says experientially, it's just not show. Not so. El this latter approach. What does it actually do? It restores your strength. Okay. Great word to know. What's loaded in modern Hebrew? What? Okay. Darren? Nobody ever knows what it means? It means to encourage. Okay, now you know, guys, he's a very nice. He, one might say he's a very encouraging family name. Ah, terrible. Okay, so it encourages him. Okay, so it says Rav Kook that it's exactly the opposite, right? You are encouraged by the second approach because you feel you're part of God. You might have thought you're discouraged, but actually, in fact, you're encouraged. Okay, so that is Rav Kook. He thinks the second approach will make you more full of energy to do the right thing, etc. Okay, now, before I get to why I might think differently than Rav Kook about this, just two, um, two limitations. Okay, Rav Kook has two limitations that are important. Okay, let's skip to three lines to the bottom. You see what it says? There's three lines to the bottom of this paragraph. Okay, Avali Yafshar. Says Rav Kook, so you want to get to the second approach, it's more encouraging ultimately. Avali Yafshar Lageshet Aleha. What's Lageshet? To approach. Like Vayigash Yuda, right? It's a parsha, right? You can't approach this. Ki ima de hargel agadol vaha talmudida sikhlidi yotirzachas shef shaliyot alpi hashkafa harishona. What did Rav Kook just say? Somehow, I guess, you can't start out life as pantheist, right? It needs to go through the first Hashkabbalah. You can't tell your three-year-old that he's a part of God, right? Apparently, that doesn't work, right? So for Rav Cook, you have to start out as 
So this is probably what you were referring to before, because you have to start as a monotheist before you get to being a panentheist. It doesn't work as the starting point. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't tell us exactly why. It'll be interesting to try to work out the argument, but I'm actually not going to do it for now. I want to get to his second limitation. What's Rav Cook's second limitation? So skip to the last paragraph now. He says, hashiri. Even though the world of speculation and feelings and poetry, is more elevated by the second approach. Notice, what's the second approach associated with? Bitul hayesh, what are you doing? You're nullifying existence, it's all divinity. Says Rav Kook, mikomakom, ha'ulam ha'masi, which world is that? The practical world. It doesn't work if you're constantly in which outlook? In the panentheistic outlook. What's a person forced to do? To lower the light, as it were. So I think this is quite fascinating. Okay, and this, I think, is easier to explain. Like, let's say I would, be like, I would like to be nice to Sammy. And I feel badly if, you know, Sammy's hurt. But if Sammy doesn't really exist, right, he's just a manifestation of, the, of divinity, it might be hard to think in those terms. It might be hard to think, oh, there's a guy named Sammy who's insulted, I should stop making the tired Ben Shore joke already, like enough, right? But uh, that's easier if I think of him as an independent quantity, as someone who exists outside of me and I have to interact with him. So says Rav Kook, if you're constantly in the panentheistic worldview, it'll ultimately get in the way of practical living. So he says it can't be a tadir way of thinking about the world. So notice Rav Kook seems to have a consciousness where I do go back and forth to some degree. Right, so let me just sum up what we've had so far. I'll take comments and I'll tell you why I think about things a little differently. What has Rav Kook said so far? Rav Kook has said that he thinks classical monotheism is depressing because you're distant from God and you think about how lowly you are. He thinks that when you move on to this more panentheistic approach, it's more encouraging. Now, you might think it would be more depressing because you're really nothing. But Cook says, yeah, be really nothing, but you're part of God. So that removes the distance. That's more encouraging. But then he had two caveats. Again, caveat one, apparently you can't start out that way. You have to start as a monotheist before you can move on to it. Caveat two says Rav Cook, even at a later stage, you can't only think in those terms. Because Rav Cook thinks if you only think in those terms, it gets in the way of practical living. Okay, we're good so far? Okay, David Edwards has been waiting impatiently. Let's go, David. Well, again, the, the biggest difference, of course, is belief in the Trinity, okay. right? So it, it, it's hard to overcome that gap, right? Ah, okay. I see what you're saying. So it's going to be it's going to be connected to one of my two points. It's going to be connected to one of my two points. Okay, who wants to comment? Yeah, like. Well, isn't that what he did? What was his argument for panentheism? His argument was not that this is Masora Misenai. What was his argument? It's going to lead to a better life. Look, it's true Rev. Cook phrased it as this is, the tr- this is where it will happen. But I would argue, look, you feel free to disagree with me. I would argue once you're arguing on this psychological experiential plane, it's hard to argue that's the only game in town. Like, why can't someone say I have a different experience? 
Okay, so watch it. Ellie Jasher, according to you, what should someone do who says, I do not experience the world the way Earth Cook experiences it? What should I do, what should I do at that point? I, I, I don't know what the alternative is, but I don't think it's fair to say that Earth Cook. I'm not sure it's fair to say that Earth Cook is saying, you know. I what if I combine it with the other Earth Cook, what I brought in earlier today? That Rav Cook set up this model in Hashkafa where if Rambam speaks to you, go with Rambam. If Kuzri speaks to you, go with Kuzri. Yeah. So, so I think once you have that other model, it's easier to plug it in over here. Okay, yeah, Yoni. I have two comments. One, like for Ellie, he says like I, like I, he says like I, if you want to speak generally, you would say men. Just curious, Yoni, where do you see the first person? Yeah, actually, not sure you're correct. Oh, so then I no, it's okay. Uh, no, maybe I mistranslated at some point. I don't think there's a first person usage anywhere in the paragraph. Right. Let me just look for a second. Yeah, I, I don't think there's a first person usage. Um, yeah, you're Rav Cook. No, to be fair to Ellie Jasho, he has challenged me in a good way. Rav Cook just does seem to say it as a fact about humanity. He doesn't say it's a fact about me. I agree. But again, my two arguments in response to Ellie were A, ultimately the argument is experiential, and B, Rav Cook in other places has set up this model where. When you're not sure what's right, and you have two models in our tradition, you could ask what speaks to you, what inspires you ultimately. Okay? Uh, yeah, Yoni? Uh, sorry, the second thing, on the fact that the second caveat is, is practical, you could probably explain the first one also practically to say that, like, if you don't have a definition of God, which, like, monotheism is the basic definition of God, then you can't say we're all God. Like, what? Like, uh, interesting. Interesting. Like, yeah, you know, God has to almost, like, that's very clever. It wants to be an independent entity before we start to figure out what the parameters of that entity are, as it were. Okay, very clever, Yoni. Okay, good. Anybody else with a comment before I go on? Yeah, Eitan. Um, Eitan, the yeshiva mystic. It's about time you spoke up. <laughs> yeah, well, either you or Noah Reisen. Now that Noah's here, it's going to be a little tough. Okay, we'll see. Well, we're gonna, now we're going to find out to separate the men from the boys, who the real mystic is. <laughs> oh, what does he mean by that? That's an interesting question. Look, I think what he might mean, I have to admit, I'm not 100% sure, sure, I should read some secondary literature on this, is, don't forget, he's basically asking if it's the Chassidur HaChadasha, what exactly is the Chassidur HaYeshana? Especially, so there's two possibilities, I actually don't know what the answer is, Eitan, but I'm just going to think out loud for a second. Okay, one possibility is that the old Chassidur is not what we call Chassidur. Okay, that, as some of you may know, there are other movements in Jewish history that are also called Chassidut. Does anyone know a movement in the time of the Rishonim that was called Chassidut? There was something called? Okay, so there was something called Chassidut Ashkenaz. There was a man named Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid. In fact, he wrote a book called Sefer HaChassidim. Does it ring a bell to anybody? So there was a form of Chassidut, obviously nothing to do with the modern Chassidut. It wasn't like bells or Samar or the case may be. Right, there was a Chassidut in the Middle Ages. Okay, just tell you some interesting things, guys. Some minhagim, which many people don't keep, but come from there. Did anyone ever hear the idea that you shouldn't marry a girl who has the same name as your mother? Did you hear that idea? Okay, that comes from medieval Hasidut. Right? That's what the Hasidic Ashkenaz thought. Why they thought that is a good question. But, uh, by the way, I'll give you a psaac right now. You could ignore that. Okay, if you, uh, if you meet the right woman and she has the same name as your mom, just, just marry her. Okay, but, um, but I'm sorry? Uh, sorry, say it again? You're saying it's very tough, really cuts down, a, cuts, cuts out the field. <laughs> okay, but in any case, uh, that is, uh, so maybe he means an earlier form of chassidut, Eitan, which I'm not sure, or, I really mean, guys, I don't know, Eitan's asking a very good question, or he's referring to trends within chassidut. Now, just to explain why that might be, let's do a little uh, history, guys, everyone should know this, if you're going to be a knowledgeable Jew, let's go through the first three generations of the Hasidic movement. Of course, it is started by... 
the Baal Shem Tovs. The Baal Shem Tov is generation one. The Baal Shem Tov has two important students. Okay, his two students are the Maggid of Mezrich and... Ooh. Wait, somebody's got to get this one, guys. Akiva Garner, save the day. The Maggid of Mezrich and... Okay. The second one is Rav Yaakov Yosef from Polnoya. Okay, he wrote a safer called the Toldot Yaakov Yosef. He are, those are the two important students of the best. The reason why you guys all know the Magid is because the Magid was the one who had the next generation of students. So the Magid is the one in some ways really made Hasidut. Okay, because the Magid has many, many important students. Okay, well now we get to the third generation. Who's in the third generation, guys? Who are students of the Magid? The Balatanya, right? The first Lubavitcher Rebbe. Okay, Rablevi Yitzchak of is a student of... Okay, the, nope, the Noam Elimelech is a student of the Magid. So things must, things must have been pretty lively at the Magid's table. Go to the, go, imagine that, go to the Magid's table, who's sitting around? You know, the Balatanya, Rabbi Yitzchak Berdichev, Rabbi Elimelech of Lushinsk, his brother of Zusha, right? Akiva Garni, you should have been there. What? I'm not sure the Chernobyl was there. Okay, but in any... What? So in any case, but notice one thing, guys. You don't get to the Balatanya until you get to the third generation of Hasidut. So I'm just wondering, I don't really answer, unless he means like maybe the Magid and the Tolu Yaakov Yosef had one approach, and the Balatanya had a different approach. So I'm not sure if that's right. So again, guys, it would be interesting to ask somebody who knows better. Is Rav Cook referring to new Hasidut as opposed to medieval Hasidut? Or is he referring to like recent trends within Hasidut? I actually think the former. I think he's contrasting Hasidut in general with, with the old Hasidut. Okay, anybody else with a comment or question? Okay, yeah, Yoni. So I'm just returning. He does say that Lepa means for, for like, uh, a suit. Uh, like, yeah, very good. Good point. Excellent. Interesting. Okay, guys. So let me tell you why. There you are. Is your hand, right? Okay, he's just resting on his buddy. Okay, so, again, so I already gave you my justification why I think if someone has a different experience, they could go the other way. And I will tell you why I think someone might feel experientially differently. But, guys, there's no definitive answer here. I think everyone in the room should ask, like, which one works for them. Okay, assuming they think both could be, like, you know, legitimate options for them, or live options for them. Okay, one would be, here's my first argument. One would be, I think that to have a relationship, it's easier for me to think about that when you're separate from the entity you're having a relationship with. Like, you, I, I would say my stomach can't really have a relationship with my elbow, because I just conceive of them as different parts of me, but so intimately connected that they can't really be distinct. I can't say, you know, my stomach was nice to my elbow today, or, the, or vice versa. So since I want the world to be a world full of relationships, relationships are a world that is much very meaningful, so it seems to me that to have a relationship with God, it's actually, again, it's just for me. Rev. Cook obviously did not think so. Okay, it's easier for me to be distinct from God and then have a relationship with God. Okay, so from, in my mind, that is one important point, that, again, not forcing anybody into it. Rev. Cook was a great man who obviously didn't agree. Okay, but for me, relationship depends on distinction. Relationship depends on independence. So that would be one reason for me to favor the classic monotheistic approach. Okay, secondly for me, I would say my, the second point is, and that maybe it's just because I have too much of an ego, but what is Rev. Cook assuming? That Bittel Hayesh is, ultimately makes you happy. Why does Bittel Hayesh ultimately make you happy? Because then you realize that you're part of God. But notice Rav Kook had a Havamina. What was the Havamina? That Bitalish would actually get you down. Remember he said? Because you're more nothing than you are in the first approach. Remember that, guys? So what if I am a little bit uh, 
stuck and left behind? What if I'm still in the Havamir? Like for me, not existing in any independent sense doesn't cheer me up. It gets me down. Okay, now what have you said? Right? Wow, you should just get over that. Right, you know, just uh, be more mature and realize that if you didn't bitol yesh, you'd be great. But okay, but th- that is the way I react right now. I would like to exist. Maybe it's uh, you know selfish on my part, but uh, that is just who I am at this point in life. Right? Maybe I'm stuck in stage one. But be that as it may, if that's a truth for me, so that is for I'll tell you guys why. For me, experientially, the classic monotheism works better. Okay, again, I have two major points here. One is for me, it's easier to have a relationship with Hashem that way. I am not Hashem, I'm distinct from Hashem. And I could love him, I could be grateful to him, etc. And two, right, for me, I think that existing is something that makes you feel more powerful and more, you know, full of vitality, as opposed to thinking that you're not really an independent entity. David Bentor. Look, let me say one thing. There's, there's a couple of things we're not going to get to today. Hopefully, this was a good start to the conversation. But something else which done towards getting at, correct, which would be, besides what I said today, so far we just said, like, what's more encouraging to you? What if I ask, how does it impact on a thousand other Jewish religious issues? And David's on the right track. Like, how does the two approaches impact on tefillah? Will I think about tefillah differently? How does it impact on free choice? Will that be... Impactively, has an influence on my thinking of performance of mitzvot. So I think uh, someone who did a real analysis would have to do all of the above. Let's just do one for a second, for example, guys. We'll do one one of the categories. Okay, many of you know that in the world of Ishbitz Hasidut, they were very, very willing to limit human freedom. Okay, even though most we showed them emphasize greatly human freedom, right? Rambam is very adamant about it. Okay, but in Ishbitz, they were willing to say, no, no, human freedom is really, really quite limited. I don't want to get into how limited it is, but maybe even non existent. Okay, now, which, I think it's pretty obvious, which conception might lead more to an Ishbitz kind of determinism? Isn't it obvious that it's panentheism? Right, if I think more in monotheistic terms, that God made me and I'm independent of God, so it's easy for me to think about me acting independently of God. God lets freedom run. God lets the natural order work, and we can act within that framework. Whereas, if I think that everything is constantly God, so I'd be much more motivated to say... God is making the decision about what I do now, not so much I'm making the decision. So I'm not, again, this is not about right or wrong, guys, but David Bentor is absolutely right. You might also ask, what are the philosophical implications of saying A or saying B? By the way, for those of you who are interested in pursuit of truth, this could help you, actually. Because you could say, conception A works better with the rest of Judaism. It makes more logical sense. Or you could say, conception B works better with the rest of Judaism. That might be a way to navigate, not just what makes me feel good, but what makes logical sense? I think that would be another way to do it, what David Bentor is suggesting right now. Yeah, Amy. Okay, who else has a question? Yeah, Michael. Absolutely. Absolutely, guys. The question is, to what degree one could live both psychologically is interesting. That's a very interesting question where it's kind of ironic because not only would Rivera and I disagree about this fundamental question, but we'd also disagree about how easy it is to live country to three things. Okay, so that's kind of an interesting thing, but I'm not going to get to it right now, but I certainly think whether or not I live country to three things, I think a sophisticated person should realize the advantage of the other approach. 
right? If, if somebody, it's a general problem life, guys. We should all work on this. Okay, yeah, you know, I'll make fun of politics again. Why not? We, we live in a ridiculous world in terms of the polarization of politics. As I say, guys, like the Republicans can't think the Democrats are right about anything and vice versa. It's just ridiculous, right? If you're, if you're a sophisticated person, obviously life is not like that. Like, what are the odds that one party is right about everything for the last 100 years? What are the odds that could possibly be true? And yet that is the way that most people function. So uh, we should get beyond that. And religiously, we should get beyond that, too. Okay, you know, I am a very staunch non-Orthodox Jew. It does not mean I think, you know, that Reformed Jews or Haredim are wrong about everything. Okay, there's, there's no reason to assume that. Okay, it, it's just, uh, you should be a more sophisticated thinker than that. doesn't mean you don't think you're right, but you could think that there are advantages to some other approach. Yeah, David. Uh, not sure that's such a theological problem. Because maybe, guess, because maybe it's important to know that he exists, but this is not as crucial. Maybe it's okay if different people think about this differently. What? Okay, but that maybe that's part of human responsibility. Maybe your responsibility is to work this out also. Maybe human responsibility is to work this out also. Yeah, no. In terms of your thing, like in terms of the determinism point, you're saying, oh, God like, gives you free will and lets the world run. Can I just clarify one thing? I didn't say if you're a panantheist, you have to be a determinist. Uh, I just said you're more likely to be a determinist. Right. Okay. Uh, just based on your point, that if you're saying God just lets the world run, then aren't you saying that he's not outside of time? That he's still functioning the same way that the world is running like the period of time? Why is. I don't see why this issue is at all connected with the gods outside of time. Either way, I could say gods outside of time. If you're saying that he just he's separate and he lets the world run, then and therefore he doesn't know what's going to happen in the future, then then you're saying he's still at the same time. He doesn't, he's not outside of it. He doesn't know. I still don't see why that follows. Well, I can tell you that in history, many classical monotheists believe that God was outside of time. Okay, if you think it's a logical conundrum, we'll have to work on that. But uh, I don't see why that's a contradiction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. God is limited in the sense that he can't create. Correct, correct. It is certainly legitimate. As you know, when we get to omnipotence, I think uh, omnipotence doesn't mean God could do anything you could put in a sentence. Yeah. I think God cannot create free beings who always do the right thing. Yeah. Okay, because there's no such thing as free beings who always do the right thing. What? No, no, he, Ellie's saying that a finite being is going to, by definition, have limited understanding. So maybe God cannot grant finite beings who fully understand the infinite. Maybe that's an Im- maybe that's an impossibility. I'm sorry. No, that is no matter what. Oh, you want to say because you're a piece of God, that means you shouldn't be able to understand the infinite. Um, you know what? I'll I'll let the panatheists handle that. I don't think they have to go that way. But yeah, Josh. Do you think some problems, like I guess in like the 21st century, if somebody's like looking for like defining God and like looking for more meaning with that respect like just the direction like now we go in is more of like the Chabad and MPS view just because like they'll get more so like finite defined answers versus like monotheism and may just like it may not be as defined um, just curious why do you think panatheism is a more defined conception of God? Um, 
He might be right. I'm just curious why you assume that. Okay, but realize not, guys. One thing to realize, guys, and maybe we'll close with this. Just like there's variety in Judaism, we talked about the classic one was panentheism. I think there's variety. There are varieties within each of them, also, obviously. Right? Just for example, the Rambam thought you couldn't say anything positive about God. You can only talk about God negatively. For the Rambam, you can't even say God's smart. You have to say God is not ignorant. Okay, he's a bit of an extremist about this. So Rav Chastai Kreskas was very much in the rationalist tradition. Rav Chastai Kreskas thought you could say positive things about God. Okay, so I, I think you have to be careful. Like, don't assume that, you know, there's only two approaches out there. You know, Rambam rationalism and Zohar mysticism, and there's nothing else. Right? Life's more complicated than that. Okay, Ellie, last comment. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Okay, actually, I'll keep it. Throughout the Mesoamitic tradition, the point where the Rambam and the Mesoamitic tradition meet is negative theology. Okay, that is interesting. Okay, so I'm just close with one thought, guys. So I just think maybe this is one good takeaway. Realize that uh, it doesn't mean that Judaism is a free-for-all. We did say there are certain core beliefs. At the same time, realize there's a big variety out there. And maybe that's a healthy thing, not a bad thing. And it's good to be in yeshiva where not everybody thinks the same thing. And if different people connect to different things on either level, whether on a truth level, or actually three levels, or a Judaism consistency level, or even just an experiential level, I think that's a good thing. So you guys should, uh, hopefully you guys this year will all find your path to God. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like, I guess a lot of what Cook was saying is based on like, Thanks.